So I've got a few things I wanted to talk about tonight that had to do with just day-to-day radon test placement. And some of the things are covered in the standard, but sometimes you run across things that aren't clearly defined. And so I thought we could talk about some of those. I hope you brought some questions because um, um, you'll have an opportunity if you'd like to, to ask. Uh, you run into situations that uh, perhaps you're not quite sure, do I place it here, do I place it there, or you're having a problem with um, uh, getting the kind of um, uh, response from your real estate agents or your, or your uh, sellers or buyers whatever that you're you're uh, working on. So um, please feel free to put your questions in the chat box and uh, AJ is going to help me get to them all. So the, the first thing I actually wanted to address has to do with the minimum requirements uh, for efforts to verify test conditions. And this comes from the NCR standard and you may or may not be uh, certified through ANSI-ARST. Uh, you may not be um, uh, certified at all. Maybe you're licensed through a state that has a licensing program. Maybe you uh, are in a state that doesn't require certification. Uh, if that's the case, I, I hope you'll consider uh, becoming uh, NRPP or NRSB certified. If you go to the Ecosense website, ecosense.io, um, we've got uh, courses there. InterNACHI has courses for you to get your certification. So um, be sure that um, you, you take advantage of having the credential uh, needed for, for doing uh, radon testing um, and providing that credibility that you'll need with your clients. So um, coming from the, from the standard itself, whoops, sorry, I just came right out of my, um, there we go. There we go. So according to the standards, it says that uh, the tester shall inform the responsible person of the required test conditions, uh, that the tester shall post notification of a radon test in progress um, sign or, or notice in a conspicuous location uh, stating the required test conditions. And, and this is one that um, I wanted to take a moment to at least address. Um, the tester shall request a signature on a non-interference agreement and note in the report whether the document was actually signed. And uh, finally, the tester shall conduct visual inspections that evaluate observed conditions, uh, document any deviations from the protocol, and any temporary conditions that might affect the result. And you're to do this both when you place um, the, the test device and when you come to uh, retrieve it. So um, as I mentioned, I want to talk about this third bullet, the, the non-interference agreement for just a minute. So uh, on, on this uh, slide, you can see over on the left, there's a, uh, a sample non-interference agreement that comes straight from the ANSI-ARST uh, radon measurement and home standard. And uh, it's, it's a, a template for you to create your own. And of course, there's also a radon test in progress uh, door hanger, uh, which you can um, create your own. You can have a, uh, a printer make them and, and put your information on them as well, or, or you can buy them pre-made. Um, and then over on the right, 
uh, there's a copy of uh, what I like to call a an authorization agreement. So I call it a radon test authorization and non-interference agreement. So the idea here is is that you're you're going to get someone to acknowledge with a uh, signature that they agree. Uh, well, first of all, that they understand the test conditions and they agree to abide by them. Um, I hear all the time where inspectors will place this on the counter. And uh, if no one is at the property, then when they retrieve the test device, the, um, the, the document is still sitting there and obviously no one signed it. So in today's um, technology world, it's, it's not difficult to send these out in advance. So I, I really urge you to consider uh, getting these out uh, via email. And who do you send it to? Well, you can send it to your client, the buyer. Um, I would make an effort to send it to the seller, which you may have to request um, information on who that is and how you can reach them, uh, or the seller's agent or the buyer's agent. Send it to all of them if need be, uh, but just let them know that you, you need a signature from someone who's going to take some uh, responsibility for the property uh, that they understand the test conditions and agree to abide by it. Now, it, it, in the event you're thinking this sounds a, a little unreasonable if the, if the property's vacant, for example, um, the, the uh, agreements are uh, clear. And, and if you look at the one that we have, um, it, it does say that uh, within reason, you know, that you're going to take uh, measures to uh, maintain these, these test conditions um, uh, within reason. So if you're, if you're looking at uh, um, sending it to a, a real estate agent, no, we're not expecting them to sit there and monitor uh, the windows for 48 hours or more. But they do have control of the lockbox. And uh, there are frequently uh, contractors um, coming in and out of the property to, to do other things to get it ready for a sale. And uh, it would be prudent for that uh, real estate agent to um, make sure that those contractors or other people entering the property, maybe it's another real estate agent still showing it, uh, understand there's a test in progress and, and they will give them um, either a, a, a heads up that they need to maintain closed house conditions or perhaps um, in, in, in the event it's a contractor needing to do work that um, they reschedule it for after the test is completed. So if you send these out in advance, my experience is that you can get them signed. Um, there are some states that require these to be signed. Uh, Illinois was one of the first states that requires it. And I remember when that happened many years ago that testers were complaining about, well, this is gonna be really difficult. People resist signing them and so forth. Um, you're not gonna be successful uh, even in a state like that when it's uh, required uh, every time and, and they don't expect that you're gonna be 100% uh, successful in getting the signatures, but they do expect that you're uh, making a, a sincere effort 100% of the time. And if you are in a state where they do audits, then you could um, um, get a, a little slap on the wrist if it looks like uh, you know most of the tests you're conducting don't have a signed authorization agreement. Um, so I would suggest you, you, you get these out in advance. And, and then let me tell you why it's important other than just the protocol says it. 
or the state requires it. Um, my experience from many years ago and, and from talking uh, to inspectors uh, for many years since is if you don't get a signed uh, agreement, then uh, if you show up and, you know, to retrieve the test and the device uh, it has been moved a little bit or the windows are open or it's obvious that there's been some tampering, then uh, the uh, typical response, if there's not an agreement signed, is, well, we didn't understand. We didn't understand it needed to be there the entire 48 hours. I, th I thought they said four to eight hours. Or we didn't understand you meant all of the windows. We just thought you meant the windows on the lowest level. Or, or whatever they want to respond, um, they're not going to take responsibility. So then there's going to be um, a, a client uh, looking at you and saying, well, now what do we do? The test results are unreliable because uh, the windows were open during the test, for example. Um, and there's going to be an expectation that you're going to come back and, and perform another test for no charge. Um, I don't think any of us like to do work for free. So um, the way to avoid that is to make a, a sincere effort to, to get these out uh, in advance and, and hopefully get the signatures back uh, even before you, you show up to uh, perform the test. Um, I like to call them authorization agreements. It's a little less... Um, I, I don't know, maybe confrontational is not the, the word, but I, I, to me, if I were the seller and you sent me a notice that calls it a non-interference agreement, uh, then I would think, well, wh what is it that makes you think I'm going to cheat on the test? I'm trustworthy, uh, so forth. Uh, if you call it an authorization agreement and within the authorization agreement, um, uh, and, and with that authorization, they're giving you uh, assurance that they understand uh, the required test conditions and agree to abide by them, then perhaps it's a little easier for everybody to, um, uh, to follow through and, and um, get it done. So uh, just a heads up on that. I, I, if you'll make an effort, I think you'll find you'll be successful and uh, you won't uh, have as many tests uh, where you have to uh, consider, well, what do we do now because the test conditions weren't maintained? Um, there's a, a, another part of the standard that talks about the test conditions, and, and I highlighted a couple of things here. Um, the um, uh, thermostat should be set to maintain uh, normal occupied temperatures between 65 and 80 degrees. Well, for the for the thermostat to, to do that, then the air handler is going to have to be set to cycle on and off automatically, depending on, um, you know, how low or how high the temperature gets, and which means the power needs to be on in the property. And um, I hear <clears throat> inspectors tell me, uh, well, you know, I, I run into a lot of homes where, you know, there's no power on. And, and um, I, I think I would do everything I could to, to make sure if I were you, uh, that you talk to people in advance uh, as part of you know the preparation and let them know, hey, the power really needs to be on for you to do a proper radon test where you can indeed uh, maintain that, um, that temperature between 65 and 80. And, and then there may be a, 
uh, a heat recovery ventilation system, an energy recovery ventilator, uh, something that does cycle some uh, fresh air in as, as um, a routine part of that uh, air handling system. Um, that's supposed to be set for the lowest ventilation that occurs for any season. So if there's part of the year where that's completely shut off, uh, then you would uh, set that ventilation to not be on at all during the test. If it's, um, it, it, if it's adjusted to allow more air in uh, certain times of the year than others, then again, you want to have it set for the lowest uh, ventilation condition that occurs. Um, so um, think about that when you're when you're talking to clients um, about um, you know taking that order that you know ask some questions um, is the is the uh, power on in the property and and so forth if not you know when will it be on is it temporary power what's the situation um, that I'm going to be running into um, this is a regulation from Illinois. And I like to bring this up because even though it's required in Illinois, uh, it's good practice no matter where you are. Um, in Illinois, there's a, a regulation that says short-term or long-term measurements shall be made at the same time in each lowest structural area suitable for occupancy. For example, a split-level building with a basement, a slab on grade room, and a room over the crawl space shall have measurements made in each of the foundation types, the basement, the slab on grade room, and a room over the crawl space. So um, the, the, the standard says you would test in the lowest level of the home uh, that could be used as a living space. But that doesn't mean you can't sell the importance of testing, for example, uh, in a room above the adjacent crawl space or in a, a room on the uh, adjacent slab addition. Um, and, and the interesting thing about this is for the 20 some odd years that this has been a requirement in Illinois, um, they've gathered data where they can see the test results in, in the um, multiple foundation areas. Um, and there have been uh, countless times where if they had only tested in the basement, for example, uh, then it would have tested low and they would have assumed there was no problem uh, when, in fact, a simultaneous measurement in the room over the crawl space or in a room over the slab showed elevated levels. Um, so it, it's a good practice. Um, and I think a lot of home inspectors don't really think about um, you know, bringing this up. We figure, well, they're just going to want the cheapest possible test. Uh, one, if they, if they do one, we've done well. Um, I think you'll find clients out there that would appreciate uh, you talking to them about uh, the importance. So again, when you're taking the order, um, you, you uh, perhaps would like to talk to them about, well, what kind of foundation does it have? Does it have more than one foundation type? Um, but, uh, regardless, be prepared that, um, you know, you may run into that. And if you didn't talk about it in advance, perhaps you could talk about it when you arrive, uh, on site. So 
just to be clear in, in, in this diagram, you can see there's a home with a basement. And uh, if that's a livable basement, then you would certainly want to test there. And then there's a, a crawl space area adjacent to that. And you would want to test in a room above that crawl space. If um, over there on uh, the other side of the house, if there had been a slab uh, addition, then um, you'd want to test in a room above that slab. So um, I put together a, a couple of little interesting um, diagrams, at least they were interesting for me because I know that you're going to run into these and you probably have. So in, in this particular floor plan, you'll see um, the lower floor, which is in the top right, uh, has a two-car garage and then a foyer and stairs that go up to the next level. And the only room on that level is a laundry room. Now, perhaps that laundry room was so big that it also had space for an office, or it also had space for a sewing room or something that um, could be occupied um, and, and be justified as a suitable place to test. But if it's if it's really just a laundry room, remember we have a protocol that says, well, um, yeah, they, they go there and they do their wash, but that's not a place they spend any significant time. And there's a humidity issue that can be a problem with uh, some detectors. So uh, we wouldn't test there. So in this scenario, um, the, the logical place to test uh, would be uh, in that living room, dining room combination and not test the laundry room. Um, as I mentioned, you're going to find exceptions to that um, because of certain conditions. Uh, if they turned already turned that, that laundry room into a, a workroom of some sort because it's large enough to do that, well then, uh, okay, you can, you can make a case. Uh, when in doubt and you can talk to the, your client, the buyer, uh, then that's a, a good thing to do rather than get into a situation after the fact. Um, but um, uh, as it's drawn up here, then the, the, the protocol would say you would test uh, on the second floor rather than on that lowest level when the only place uh, other than the garage and the stairwell is a uh, laundry room. Here's, a, here's another situation where uh, you've got a lower level with a, uh, a garage and a kitchen, and then it does open into a, a, a great room, and, and then there's a floor above that. So in, in this situation, um, you would want to test there in that great room as far away from the kitchen as you can get without um, you know, being too close to it. Uh, an exterior wall and, and so forth, all the other uh, requirements uh, you want to maintain. But um, I have um, had questions when I've done uh, webinars and classes over the years where someone would, would say, well, I encountered a home where the uh, lowest level only had the kitchen and a little breakfast area. And then there were stairs that went up to the main living area. So uh, what would I do there if I'm not supposed to test kitchens? Well, the standard says that if you, if you have a situation where you're going to uh, test in a place that's 
perhaps a, um, not exactly what the protocol says, then uh, you need to document why you chose that place. So if if it just said uh, you know kitchen and you didn't have the the area uh, down here that says great room and it was just you know a little dining area there, then yeah it would be suitable to test there. I would get as far away from the cooktop and and oven as, as you could get and perhaps where they might eat breakfast if there's a breakfast bar or a breakfast nook um, and test there and then document in your test report why you chose to test there. It was the lowest level. Um, that was the most logical place to put it. Uh, you avoided you know, humidity from the cooking and uh, that's why you, you placed it there. And then you're gonna run into all sorts of things, particularly in older houses that have um, cellars or uh, really rough basements. And so if, if it were me and I was looking at a situation like you see on the left, I would say, well, they have a washer and dryer there, but the rest of that space looks pretty unlivable. Um, so I would suggest that the, the test be placed in the room above. Now you're testing for a buyer and there's certainly the potential for that buyer to say, well, but I plan to, uh, clean that up and and put a, a workout room or something there. And if that's the case, then all right. But I would suggest that you make sure that that's clear to the seller, that the buyer wants to test in that space because they're going to use it in a far different way. Um, and you're not surprised with an argument after the fact that you get sucked into um, so if you can document that ahead of time, that would be helpful to get everybody's agreement. Otherwise, I would just go ahead and choose to test upstairs. Or if you have an extra uh, uh, test device, then maybe you test both um, uh, upstairs and in that lowest level. But um, the protocol would frown, uh, at least the way it's written, on, on testing um, a, a basement like you see there on the left. Now, you get to the right, and that, that's... It's a little um, hard to tell, you know, what's behind everything there, but they have done, um, you know, some work to make that livable. And obviously somebody is spending time there. There's a, there's a bed, there's a desk, a TV, they put lights down there, uh, a rug on the floor um, or something. So it, it looks like uh, um, that's a, a, livable space and someone is indeed living in it. And that would be my justification, if it were me, uh, for testing in that location. So I'm going to take just a short check-in here with uh, uh, AJ. Do we have any questions about anything so far? So far, we have no questions, Dallas. Oh, okay. Well, then, good. So, if you again, if you've run across something that is different um, than what I've uh, gone over, then uh, please ask your question. Uh, I'll do my best to answer it. So, new construction is always uh, an interesting uh, request. So, my experience in dealing with inspectors over the years, when a builder calls you to 
uh, do a test on a new home that you ask a lot of questions before you you trip out to the house. Um, so I'm going to go to this next slide. And for example, it says for new construction, all openings to the exterior due to incomplete construction or structural defects or disrepair need to be closed or sealed at least 12 hours prior to initiating the test. The heating and cooling system needs to be active and set to a normal occupied temperature. So obviously it needs to be installed and the power needs to be on. Uh, all windows and exterior doors need to have been installed with hardware and seals. Uh, all insulation and exterior siding needs to have been um, installed. All wall and ceiling coverings um, need to have been completed, uh, including interior drywall or paneling. Um, obviously, if they haven't gotten it all painted yet, um, then uh, uh, that's a, a different conversation. But, you know, everything needs to be, you know, where it can be enclosed and, and, um, and, and partitioned like it's going to be. Uh, all fireplaces um, need to have been installed, including the dampers, where the damper can be closed. So, um, again, my experience is when you get uh, to a house that looks a little like this, um, when you were called out to do the test, you may find that some of those things are not um, done. You may find, well, there's actually no power in the place, or the the hardware is really not on the windows um so i i would suggest strongly that if a builder calls you to test a new property that you or your staff um is trained to ask that builder um you know 15 or 20 questions um and even perhaps uh, are you sure um i know i have been told years ago i had you know would go out and do a test myself and and um the builder uh, assured me that uh, everything was done and then I would get out to the site and the on-site um, um, you know, project manager uh, uh, would look at me like, well, he told you that? Really? No, we, we haven't gotten that done yet. Um, so just a heads up, no point in making a trip if you don't have to. Uh, better to ask the questions up front. Here's another situation that is addressed in the standard. Let's suppose you had a building with four uh, individually owned condominiums and two on the right, two on the left, one stacked over the other. And let's say the, the owner of that uh, bottom left uh, condominium wants you to perform a, a radon test. Well, what do you do about closed house conditions? So the, the standard says that when testing only one or several units of a shared building, like a duplex or townhouse apartment, uh, with occupied units above or below the ones to be tested, closed building conditions are required for all portions of the building, including dwellings above and below the tested uh, unit. So, um, so now you're going to have to figure out, perhaps, uh, how you can maintain closed house conditions in the entire building when uh, those other units are uh, are in the control of a different owner. So they 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 put an exception 
in, in the standard for that situation. It says testing is permitted if closed conditions in the other units are beyond the control of the tester. However, this situation requires that the conditions, circumstances, and appropriate recommendations are described in writing for inclusion with reports when distributed. So the answer to this is if indeed uh, you have no control over closed conditions in those other units, uh, that you make it clear in your report, anywhere you can put notes. Uh, if you're using our equipment, we've got a, a place where you can uh, put notes uh, to include in the report. And, and you just describe the situation uh, where it's clear that um, uh, you cannot uh, uh, verify or you observed closed conditions weren't maintained in, in the other units. And, and that's the best you can do. Now, just to, to go a step further, if you were hired to, to characterize the radon in the entire multifamily building, then you're going to follow a different protocol altogether. And, and that is the ANSI-R's protocol for, for testing multifamily uh, and large buildings. Um, if you go to standards.arst.org, standards.arst.org, then uh, you can scroll through and see all of the different uh, ANSI-R standards and you can find uh, the one for multifamily. And all of the standards can be viewed for free. Uh, you can't download them uh, or, or readily search them, but you can, you can certainly uh, open them up and, and scroll through and, and, and read them if you'd like. And you can purchase them um, if, if, at that same site. Um, I think they're typically around $50. If you are an ARST uh, member, then your membership includes uh, free uh, uh, copies or, or access. So you'll get the PDF versions uh, for you to download and save on your computer uh, without having to pay additional for them if you are an ARST member. Um, it's good to know if you're not um, you know, certified, then I would strongly recommend that uh, you consider getting certified. Uh, in the meantime, I would definitely make sure that you're you're familiar with the standard. Um, you know, spend uh, a little time going through and 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 make sure that you're clear um, and that you're following uh, the standard and the um, doing your tests in an, in an appropriate manner. Um, improper deployment. So let's think about this, and this is. Is, is something that I, I think uh, if you consider professionalism in addition to um, uh, following the standard, then you know the the clown on the left is is placing a, a radon test device on the floor right at the sump. Well, that might be interesting for a mitigator to do some diagnostics, uh, but is not a test um, suitable for determining whether the home should be mitigated. And then uh, this is commonplace where, where instead of having a tripod or a stand, a TV tray, something to, to put the monitor on, um, uh, a lot of uh, testers just you know, place it right on top of a, uh, a five-gallon bucket. Personally, I don't think a, a five-gallon bucket looks very professional, but even if it did, uh, a five-gallon bucket is not a full 20 inches off the floor. 
Um, I have seen where uh, people put put a box on top of the five gallon bucket and then put the monitor on top of that. Um, if you have a device that uh, has the ability to connect to a tripod, then I would suggest uh, that looks a lot better, looks more professional. Uh, if you go to Amazon, uh, you can find tripods uh, for $12, $15. Uh, it's not like it's going to uh, be a, a heavy burden on your budget, and um, you'll have them handy uh, for placement and not have to look around for a, a paint bucket or something to put your uh, test device on. Um, I'm going to kind of in, end up with something here and, and without getting too much on a on, on an advertisement here, but we have a couple of homeowner devices. Uh, we have an EcoCube. Uh, we also have an EcoBlue. And I invite you to go to our website and, and look at um, uh, how they work and, and, and how they operate. And you may be asking yourself, um, well, why would I care about homeowner devices? I do professional tests. So here's where I, I would like you to consider that um, this is an opportunity for you. So let's suppose you use our um, uh, our Radon Eye Pro or you, you use some, some other company's uh, uh, professional monitor and you do a, a very um, good two or three day test. Um, you followed all the protocols, uh, closed house conditions were maintained and everything was done by the book. But um, when the test result is, is um, generated, the levels fall between two and four picocuries per per liter. The, the standard says that if the results fall between two and four, the client should consider mitigation. So let me make that clear. If the, if the results are four picocuries per liter or higher, then the EPA recommendation says fix the building. If the levels are between two and four, then the recommendation is to consider fixing the building. So if you've uh, seen as much test data as I have over the many years, um, you, you know that um, radon concentrations can vary a lot uh, throughout the, the day and night. They can vary a lot from week to week, from month to month, and certainly from season to season. So even if you did a great two-day test, it isn't necessarily reflective of what the concentrations are uh, over a longer period. The protocol for testing in real estate transactions enables us to do the best we can in the short time um, frame uh, that we have for um, um, you know, getting the test done and, and the property evaluated before closing. And you know, thousands and thousands of properties have been, in, been tested by home inspectors like yourself where um, people have discovered the concentrations were high and, and they went ahead and mitigated and they got benefit from that. Um, so the program is a success. Uh, that said, it, if it fell between two and four, um, do you really know what it is over the longer period? So here's an opportunity where if you were to join, uh, for example, our referral club, 
then you would be able to um, actually sell your client one of our homeowner devices at the lowest price they could buy it at. We will even discount it uh, to match whatever we have on Amazon and, and, and less. So we, we, we monitor that. And uh, you can get a commission for doing it. Um, we pay those commissions out every month um, via PayPal. So uh, I, I was excited um, at the um, uh, InterNACHI conference in Atlantic City uh, last week where we had one of our um, inspectors who uses our Radon Eye Pro uh, run up to me and say, hey, I'm ready to buy another Radon Eye Pro. I made enough money over the years so far uh, selling the homeowner devices that uh, the commission is, is gonna pay for another unit. Um, now I can tell you that uh, this home inspector is aggressive in, in selling them. Uh, she makes it um, uh, very clear to her clients that they really need to have one and she's passionate about it. Uh, but as a result, they trust her and she, she sells a lot of, of those units and, and makes a commission off them. Um, but more importantly than making the commission is the fact that you're doing a service for your client. Um, you, you've been cl clear with them. You've done everything you can within the time constraints before closing. But now they have an opportunity because um, these kind of devices are, are affordable um, today that they can uh, monitor their uh, radon concentrations ongoingly from that point forward. Um, and then there's another uh, situation. So you you know uh, from experience if you've been doing testing that you're handing out test results that are elevated and that the client is going to end up having um, or, or your client's going to end up insisting that the seller have the home mitigated in order to close the deal. Well, in that instance, the seller is typically uh, hiring the mitigation contractor. They really don't care uh, whether the mitigation contractor is uh, competent, uh, certified, trained, um, uh, conscientious. Uh, they, they are looking for the, the smallest price and, um, and uh, to get a test result below the action level in time to present to the buyer before closing. So I would um, uh, strongly recommend that, you know, when that occurs, that you explain to your client, well, okay, so, so they've mitigated it and you've got a test result, but um, how are you gonna know the system is working uh, from this point forward? Uh, here's an opportunity for you to give your client a, a, um, a, a device or provide them with a device that they can monitor um, their mitigation system um, for uh, all the weeks and months and, and years after that uh, to make sure that it's working. And there are a couple of situations where uh, the mitigation system um, may not be working, even though it, it was working indeed at the time of, of closing. For example, um, perhaps the mitigation uh, or clearance test, the short-term test was done in April or September when the heat or the air conditioning wasn't really running and um, it, the mitigation worked well. But in the, in the uh, coldest month of winter, when the stack effect is enhanced because of the temperature difference between inside and out and, 
Uh, perhaps you've got some leaky return ducts down in the lower level that are sucking air from the uh, from the basement and 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 can, changing that pressure relationship between the house and the soil, then um, the mitigation system is overwhelmed by by the operation of the air handler, and and it's no longer effective during um, during the winter or perhaps even during the summer. So uh, you wouldn't know that if you didn't have a way to monitor it. And, and the, the, the standard, in, as well as EPA recommendations, say that if a home is uh, mitigated, then you should retest every two years. But there are a lot of situations during that two-year period where the system may not be working. A fan can fail, and uh, the little YouTube manometer on the, um, uh, on the pipe may just be, you know, in a uh, obscure place where they put their suction pipe and people don't pay any attention to it and, and never notice that the fan uh, quit running and, and uh, maybe the capacitor failed and never came back on again. And, and they're, um, you know, thinking everything is fine. Um, I've, I've gone to um, uh, homeowner, uh, not homeowner, um, garden shows, home and garden shows where um, uh, I was working with uh, one of our, uh, uh, large clients um, last spring, and I showed up to spend the day with him, and and uh, uh, people would come by, and he was talking to them about radon, and they'd say, "Yeah, well, I had my home tested, you know, five years ago. I, I'm sure I have no radon." Um, well, did you did you have it mitigated? Oh yeah, I have a mitigation system. I know it works. Well, when's the last time you tested? Oh, it's been it's been a number of years. Um, so here's an opportunity. Um, I would invite you to consider. So if you if you go to our website, ecosense.io, ecosense.io, you can join uh, our referral club. There's actually a little menu button at the top. Um, referral club, click on it, fill out a little form. Uh, somebody will get back in touch with you. We'll help you with a, um, a, um, a discount code that will track everything to you. Uh, you can give your clients that discount code. We'll set it up also with an automatic button to put on your website. Um, and uh, if they click on that button and, and buy from you through your website, then uh, it'll automatically track the sale and uh, you'll get your commission that way. Um, but it's, it's a great service and, and uh, I urge you to consider it. <laughs>